unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives, a battle of personalities. Welcome to Granthamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. On February 14, 2019, a suicide bomber crashed into an Indian paramilitary convoy in Pulwama, Kashmir, killing 40 Indian soldiers. The attack was the deadliest assault on Indian security personnel in Kashmir in three decades and captured the attention of domestic and international headlines. It also led to a nationalist fervor that fueled, in part, the BJP's dramatic re-election just months later in the 2019 elections. But how did the attack take place? Who were the masterminds of the operation? And how does this attack fit into a decades-long story of terrorism, militancy, and spycraft that has come to define the contemporary politics of Kashmir? These questions are clinically addressed in a new book by the journalist Rahul Pandita, The Lover Boy of Bahawalpur, How the Pawama Case Was Cracked. Rahul previously joined me in August 2019 to discuss the politics in Kashmir and the wake of the nullification of Article 370. I am pleased to have him back on the program. Rahul, good to have you again. Thank you, Milan. I'm uh, glad to be back. So I want to ask you to begin by taking us back to that fateful day. It was Valentine's Day, 2019, the day of the Pawama attack. Some of our listeners uh, may recall it. Some of them may have been unaware in the book, you have reconstructed the events of that day in meticulous detail. Tell us about how the attack unfolded on the ground. So it was a, a rather gloomy winter day in uh, Kashmir, Milan, and uh, it had been snowing quite a bit for about a week or so, uh, due to which the national highway that connects Kashmir with uh, the rest of India had been closed. And on that day, the convoys carrying Indian soldiers to their duty stations in Kashmir uh, from mainland India had uh, resumed after more than a week's gap. Uh, so obviously there was some rush, uh, you know, and there had been some rather vague intelligence inputs about the possibility of a VBIED attack or a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device attack. But like I said, the intelligence was not actionable at all. So basically, the security grid in Kashmir was clueless about the fact that a conspiracy of this level was being hatched and was about to be executed. And then the attack happened. This young uh, Kashmir man drove a, a blue-colored car uh, into uh, bus number five in the convoy. And the impact of the blast, it was carrying about 200 kilos of explosives. Uh, some of it are the deadly explosive RDX and some of it other explosives, uh, which resulted in the killing of 40 soldiers. And it was a gruesome sight because, you, you know, the intensity of the attack was such that uh, most of these soldiers were blown to pieces. And it left everyone stunned and shocked for, uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Nobody could re react at all um, among the convoy. And all you could recover from the spot for hundreds of meters uh, was essentially body parts of these soldiers. But even after the Kashmiri suicide bombers video was released um, about 15 minutes after the attack, hardly anyone in uh, the Kashmir security grid could believe 
that a Kashmiri terrorist could have done it because, you know, there was hardly any, uh, almost no precedent uh, of a Kashmiri suicide bomber except one in 2000. What is more perplexing for me is that for months till India's premier investigation agency, the National Investigation Agency, kind of connected the dots, uh, no one knew about the presence of the mastermind um, Umar Farooq in Kashmir. Farooq is Jashim Muhammad, Chief Masood Adhar's nephew. He was, in fact, or the fact that he was killed in Kashmir just a month and a half after the attack. It is only much later that the whole story is sort of unraveled. Before we get deeper into the book, Rahul, I want to ask you about method. You know, I imagine that reporting this book was no easy task, especially given the security lockdown in Kashmir in the wake of the events of August 2019. And then, of course, you had a lockdown within a lockdown because you had the COVID pandemic. You had limited physical mobility, limited access. How did you report this book? It was tough, uh, really. But uh, what sort of helped my case was that I uh, covered Kashmir almost like a daily beat. Uh, Kashmir and the Mao's heartland in eastern India are two areas I kind of keep an eye on uh, because I think I have a personal stake of sorts in these two areas. I'm from Kashmir and uh, uh, have spent years traveling in the Mao's defected areas, sometimes for uh, weeks embedded with Mao's guerrillas. So when Pulwama happens, I know that it is the deadliest attack to have happened in Kashmir in its uh, three decades of bloodied history. But there is one moment, especially when the story becomes too close um, and kind of sharp in my heart. Uh, and I think uh, this story needs to be followed more diligently. Um, a few weeks after the incident, you know, I'm traveling through the area, through the spot of the attack with a, a small unit of the Indian Army. And uh, among this unit are a few young officers of military intelligence. Um, and these young officers were among the first um, uh, response team uh, to reach uh, the spot, basically minutes after the attack took place. Um, and one of the officers described that attack to me, you know, what he first saw when he uh, reached that spot. So it's a double road. Um, and on one side of the road, there's a, a small hillock of sorts, and there are a few communication towers. Uh, on, on that hillock. So he told me that the intensity of the blast was such that he found the uh, mangled remains of four uh, paramilitary soldiers dangling over that communication tower. So a part of my journalism, you know, over the past two decades is also about the fact that, you know, when I go to some of these areas, like the Mao's heartland, you know, there's, uh, you know, I personally make an attempt to kind of... Um, give faces to these statistics, you know, uh, when you say 40 CRPF soldiers have died. So who are these 40 CRPF soldiers? What life they had, you know, what ambition, dreams, you know, their families, and under what circumstances did they find themselves in Kashmir? So I I, I kind of started following this um, story more diligently, and I thought to myself that, you know, it uh, uh, perhaps deserves much more than a, uh, you know, 3,000 word, 4,000 word uh, news report. Rahul, I think it might be useful for some of our listeners to provide a bit of broader context, right? Because the Kashmir of 2019 was very different from the Kashmir of 2014, or even of 2004, or even of 2000, right? You note that 
in the mid-2000s, from the perspective of the rank-and-file soldier, Kashmir was seen as the quote-unquote safe posting because the real fight was against left-wing extremists in the Red Corridor, you know, the fight against Maoist guerrillas. But then by 2015, the situation had reversed itself. The Maoist insurgency had been not defeated, but certainly was in decline. But things in Kashmir began to heat up. What exactly changed over that decade-long period where essentially um, these two positions switched themselves? So to answer this question, um, I think I'll have to draw a little map of insurgency in Kashmir for our listeners. And I'll try to uh, keep it as brief as possible. <laughs> so insurgency begins in 1989-90 with uh, uh, this militant organization called Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front. Uh, comprising of Kashmiri boys who are asking for azadi or freedom from Kashmir. Yeah. And they are clear about their other goals, namely the ouster of Kashmir's minuscule Hindu population or the Kashmiri pundits. About 700 of them are brutally massacred, hunted down in their um, homes, offices, shops. There's also a lot of euphoria in, in Kashmir at that point in time because the might of the Indian state has collapsed. There is an absolute paralysis. Uh, many in the local police are also sympathetic to Islamist extremists. Uh, but what happens quickly is that JKLF or the Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front is quickly replaced by Hezbollah Mujahideen by Pakistan. Um, and it talks clearly about merger of Kashmir with Pakistan. And by 93-94, lots of Afghan war veterans are in Kashmir battling it out with uh, uh, Indian forces. But the war is more or less over. The Kashmiri militant leadership understands that separation from the Union of India will remain an utopia. So they get more interested in cutting deals with Indian agencies and Pakistani agencies. Everyone is sort of uh, making... Uh, you know, money taking advantage of this uh, intelligence agency's thirst for asset building. Uh, so, you, you know, everyone is being employed by this agency or that uh, as, a, as a potential asset. And then, you know, in the late 90s, the Kargil war happens between India and Pakistan. Pakistan is defeated. Uh, towards the end of 99, IC-814 hijacking takes place, resulting in the release of Masood Azhar and Omar Sheikh and one more terrorist. And we'll come back to that because that is a critical moment. Absolutely. So in, so, so, so immediately afterwards in 2000, Jash is formed by Masood Azhar. So we see another phase of terrible violence um, in Kashmir. There's a deadly attack on the Kashmir Legislative Assembly, as deadly as the Bulwama attack. Uh, there's a parliament attack of 2001, and so on and so forth. And Rahul, just to be clear, Jaishi Mohammed is a terrorist organization which finds safe haven in Pakistan, which uh, many people have argued um, has direct links with the Pakistani ISI or intelligence establishment. Is that right? Yes. So, 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 no. You know, the cycle of violence kind of continues through the early 2000s. Till the death in 2003 in Kashmir of the 
dreaded Jash commander Ghazi Baba, about whom I have written in detail about uh, the circumstances under which he was killed and what he tried to do in uh, uh, Kashmir. He was the mastermind of the parliament attack um, in India. After Ghazi Baba's death, you know, the Jash infrastructure and network is kind of destroyed in Kashmir. And by the middle of 2000s, 2006, 7 peace returns to Kashmir. And as a Kashmiri, you know, when you, I, I fell for the first time as a, as a reporter going to Kashmir since 1998, um, uh, you know, and as a, as a reporter, I've witnessed terrible, terrible things in, in, in Kashmir. Um, uh, in those days, I was young and reckless and did not fully understand the journalistic uh, uh, difference of, uh, you know, the crossing of line between what you call guts and stupidity. So I've done some reckless things in those uh, in, in 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 those days, and this is a time when none of us had any clue about the possibility or even the existence of things like PTSD, etc. So coming back to the you know the Srinagar city, the main city in Kashmir is declared free of terrorists. Several other districts are also declared terrorist free, but by two thousand eight. Pakistan and separatist elements in Kashmir change their care. Uh, you know, they want to show again that the so-called resistance movement uh, in Kashmir is indigenous. So a new phase of stone pelting or, um, or intifada, as many Kashmiri writers in American universities like to call it, uh, begins. So till 2014... There's this blow hot, blow cold. You know, there are many uh, uh, episodes where, you know, these young men are fighting pitched battles uh, with intense security uh, forces. There are, uh, there comes into existence the idea of pellet guns and, you know, there are, you know, the pictures of uh, uh, people who have been hit by, with these uh, uh, pellet guns or all over the international press and so on and so forth. And then Mr. Modi comes to power in 2014. And now everyone in Kashmir thinks that, you know, oh God, the Hindu nationalist uh, government is here. Now things will change drastically. But the BJP goes and makes an alliance with a soft separatist uh, political party in uh, Kashmir called the PDP. And uh, many in Kashmir joke about this alliance. They call it an alliance between the RSS and Hizbul Mujahideen. Hizbul Mujahideen because... Um, there is credible evidence that the PDP uses uh, the help of Jamaat-e-Islamic cadre to win elections in Kashmir, and Hizbul Mujahideen is the armed wing of Jamaat-e-Islam. Um, and then, uh, you know, the episode of Burhanwani happens in 2016, and Kashmir is plunged into a civil war of sorts. And that is where the whole scenario changes. But from 2016-17 onwards, the entire scenario changes and uh, it becomes very similar to uh, what the paramilitary soldiers faced in Kashmir in the 90s. So uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important. In 2015, as you mentioned, there were state assembly elections. The BJP of Mr. Modi struck up uh, an unlikely political alliance with the People's Democratic Party or PDP to form the government in Jammu and Kashmir. It was the first time the BJP was a part of the governing apparatus. Um, at the same time, as you just uh, said, the PDP had l credible links to separatist groups operating in the state, which 
the BJP has been very vocal in in opposing. So I'm trying to understand here, why would a Hindu nationalist party, which has long wanted to integrate Kashmir into the union, something they ended up doing formally with the abrogation of Article 370 in August 2019, why would they dip their toe into these waters and align themselves with a group that was encouraging or providing aid and succor to separatist elements? Because we now know one of the justifications of nullifying Article 370 was the fact that it, it essentially emboldened separatist elements, right? Uh, many of the PDP leaders who the BJP had joined hands with were placed under house arrest. So how do we think about this political alliance that was going on at the time? The shortest po possible answer to this question is that BJP, uh, Mr. Modi's government, uh, time in again in the last uh, uh, seven years, has committed this terrible mistake of conflating their electoral strategy or electoral gains with national interest. Uh, this is what we see uh, time and again, you know, even in the government's poor handling of COVID crisis in the second round, uh, where you had uh, rallies after rallies uh, happening in the middle of this uh, COVID crisis uh, with uh, Prime Minister Modi attending them, uh, these rallies themselves. Um, and... Uh, addressing these rallies and saying that, you know, I've never seen such crowds uh, in a political rally before. And in the same evening, uh, chairing a meeting on uh, how to tackle the COVID crisis. Uh, so, you know, for the same greed, for the same benefit of uh, gaining this electoral power, uh, it made this uh, Himalayan blunder, really, of... Uh, making an alliance with the People's Democratic Party. But in 2014, uh, when the so-called Hindu nationalist government is supposed to uh, bring a remarkable change in the way we look at Kashmir, uh, it goes ahead and for the sake of the sheer political power, uh, embraces uh, you, you know the same people whom it has called uh, villains in the past. And after the break of this alliance continues to call them villains. And like you rightly pointed out, after the abrogation uh, puts them under uh, detention uh, for weeks and months. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grantham Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is you make in the book an explicit link between the hijacking of Indian Airlines Flight 814 and the Pawama attacks. Now, IC-814, many of our listeners will recall, was a flight headed from Kathmandu to Delhi. It was hijacked by five masked men forced to land in Kandahar, Afghanistan, which was then under the control of the Taliban. In order to free the hostages on that flight, India agreed to release 
three well-known terrorists from Indian prisons. This was seen at the time a humili- as a humiliating setback for the government. We should just mention that the, the, the current national security advisor was an important protagonist in, in this affair. Um, what does any of this have to do with Pawama? So like I mentioned earlier, Milan, that in the 90s, uh, in the early 90s, you know, hundreds of these Afghan Mujahideen are sent by Pakistan's ISI to fight in Kashmir. So in the early 90s, a man called Nasrullah Mansur Langrial is sent. He's an Afghan war veteran and a personal friend of Ilyas Kashmiri, who is a former, who was rather a former Pakistan special forces person and the leader of Huji or Harkatul Jihad Islam. And uh, Kashmiri was killed in a US drone strike in Northwest Pakistan in 2011. Now, Langrial uh, comes to Kashmir in 93 and in a stroke of bad luck for him, is arrested by the Indian Army in the November of 1993. And for Pakistan uh, and its forces fighting, uh, you know, these these mercenaries fighting the, its war in Kashmir, it is a major setback. So the ISI sends another Afghan war veteran with the name of Sajjad Afghani. Um, uh, to, uh, to to kind of uh, take steps to ensure the release of Nasrullah Langria. Now, Afghani, uh, you know, is a is a reckless warrior, and he goes a little out of control. Uh, he kidnaps an Indian Army officer and executes him in cold blood, etc. Uh, and then to kind of control him, uh, Pakistan sends immediately afterwards uh, Masood Azhar. Uh, now, as luck would have it, Masood Azhar also, in a stroke of bad luck, is arrested just days after he lands uh, in, in, in South Kashmir because a small three-wheeler or an auto rickshaw in which he's traveling with Sajjad Afghani breaks down in the middle of a market square and he's picked up by um, uh, the Indian Army and the BSF. They have absolutely no idea how important he is. Uh, but then later they know uh, who Masood Azhar is. Now, with the arrest of Masood Azhar, Pakistan becomes um, uh, kind of more and more restless. Uh, and as you remember, in 1995, the Harkatul Jihad Islami, under the name of Al Fara, uh, kidnaps uh, six foreign tourists um, uh, in Kashmir. Now, you know, after that, 99 uh, happens and uh, Masood Azhar is uh, 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 Masood Azhar is freed um, uh, in in the release of uh, in exchange of uh, the passengers of the ill-fated IC 814, and he immediately creates uh, Jashe Mohammed. Now, Langrial is repatriated to Pakistan uh, sometime in 2011. How and why? There's absolutely no clarity about it. Uh, Masood forms, as we know, the Jash in 2000, uh, recruits Ghazi Baba. He builds a great, invincible infrastructure around him. Now, coming back to Pulwama, why Ghazi Baba's story is important, the story of IC814 is important, because it is in many ways the same network Umar Farooq, the mastermind of the Pulwama attack, uses when he plans Pulwama attack. I mean, it's a remarkable uh, full circle, Rahul, and it reminds me a lot of, you know, the writings of Steve Cole on Afghanistan and the U.S. uh, support for the Mojahideen 
many of whom then come back, right, and we are, are, are protagonists in a, in a different war at a different time. Uh, of course, at that point, not working with the United States, but against the United States. Um, I want to ask you about a different character, and it's an important character, although one who has a brief appearance uh, by virtue of his terrorist acts. The suicide bomber in Pawama was a Kashmiri young man named Adil Dar. He was an Indian national who had become radicalized. He emerged as a Jaish foot soldier in Kashmir. How significant is it, do you think, that Dar was not a foreign fighter, that he was a Kashmiri? And what do we exactly know about the specific factors in his case that led him to take up arms against the Indian state? It's a typical story from Kashmir, which we have seen uh, repeated time and again over the last many, many years. Adil Dar is from South Kashmir. He's essentially from Pulwama itself. Uh, he used to live just a few miles off the spot where he rammed this explosive-laden car into uh, the convoy. And, uh, you know, the police calls it a typical demography that attracts young Kashmiri Muslim boys to terrorist groups. You know, it's a family with very little education, uh, already some sort of radicalization. Um, there are a few relatives, uncles, cousins who are already a part of uh, this terrorist group or that terrorist group. Um, as, a, as a boy is sent to a madarsa nearby, uh, from Madarsa, he turns into a stone pelter and then, uh, you know, into a chronic stone pelter. And then an overground worker of uh, a terrorist organization, which, according to police, is a natural transition uh, for many men like Adil Dar. It is only when he comes in touch with Umar Farooq, uh, when he turns into this hardcore jihadi, willing to give away his life. Now, Umar is not an ordinary uh, terrorist. He has been trained in the best joint jihadi facilities of Al-Qaeda and Jash and Taliban um, in the Sangin camp of Afghanistan's Helmand province. Um, uh, he knows how to influence young men uh, like Adil. So the moment he sets his eyes upon Adil, he knows that this is... Uh, going to be uh, his man. So Adil Dar, like he has been trained in the uh, in the in the best facilities, is isolated uh, from 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 the from the rest of the people. He is repeatedly made to listen to uh, the speeches of uh, 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 Sheikh, as they call Masood Azhar, uh, where he's kind of beseeching, uh, the, uh, urging the Kashmiri men to uh, uh, rise against the uh, atrocities uh, of the Indian state and so on and so forth. Uh, till the time he, uh, you know, as I described vividly in my book, uh, uh, till the time he actually rams this uh, uh, car, by this time he is almost uh, uh, scared of uh, Umar Farooq because uh, he knows that uh, he he will have a uh, perhaps a more slow and gory death if he does not follow uh, the diktats of Umar Farooq, and he prefers the other death. And like I write in my book, when he's when when he's going, uh, he's very nervous. His hands are trembling, but I think by the time he's mature enough to understand that there's no going back for him, there's no return for him. I want to fast forward from February 14, 2019. 
uh, just a couple of weeks uh, later when the Indian Air Force targeted a Jaishi Muhammad training camp in Balakot, Pakistan, uh, which was, of course, uh, retaliation for the suicide attack. Now, this has been one of the most contested strikes in, in recent Indian history. Pakistan has long claimed that Indian forces hit nothing but a bunch of trees. The Indian government, for its part, uh, proudly announced that it had neutralized scores of terrorists. Uh, what did you learn from your reporting about what actually happened in Balakot that day? So Balakot is not uh, uh, the, you know, does not form the main core of my a story about Pulwama, but it's, of course, an essential milestone in my story. Um, so I've made a brief mention of the entire episode. In my experience, Including the fact that that uh, Indian intelligence, the RNAW, had a human source there on the ground who helped to identify the camp. I realized that both sides are basically exaggerated. And like I write in my book, uh, you know, immediately on the same evening when when this uh, incident happens, when this terrorist attack happens, the government of India makes up its mind to kind of strike back at Pakistan. Now there are, you know, there are, there are, there are many options. Uh, just, a, just a few years back, you know, they've done this symbolic uh, so-called surgical strike uh, in Uri in response to a terrorist attack. Uh, along the line of control uh, in, in Kashmir, um, so 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 the research and analysis wing gives that as part of the option, but the government rejects it uh, completely because you know they don't want this to be another symbolic act. They want this to be, um, you know, what you call crossing a Rubicon of sorts, right? Uh, then uh, you know other options are found, and then the third target. Um, which seems very viable to, uh, to 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 Mr. Modi and his government, and it's a Jash training camp on a hilltop in a place called Balakot. So uh, first, the intelligence uh, bureau is asked to, uh, uh, you know, kind of directed to send the coordinates of this particular camp. Um, I think they take about three days, and then they come up with coordinates, but those coordinates are wrong. Uh, so that is when the raw sends one of its uh, human assets to uh, to 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 the uh, particular place, and like a source, like my source told me that he was carrying a mobile phone in his upper pocket of his shirt, uh, which kind of beamed a live video of the uh, area to a facility uh, in Delhi. And then the government decides to, uh, I mean, there are other reasons, you know, there's a uh, one of the assets uh, somewhere in a neutral country tells them about the history of Balakot and the fact that in 1831 that the Sikh ruler Maharaja Ranjit Singh, uh, his troops had killed this uh, uh, man called Sayyid Ahmad Barelvi, uh, a man, you know, whose dreams of establishing an Islamic caliphate preceded those of uh, organizations like ISIS, etc. Uh, so, you know, for a government like Mr. Modi's, you know, this, this, this the historical symbolism of it, uh, the place also works very well. So this, uh, so this happens. But now, this is where uh, the exaggeration ends. Um, my my sources have told me that uh, the facility was hit, but they have absolutely no idea about. Uh, how many casualties took place? 
uh, I think the Pakistan authorities were smart enough uh, to kind of disperse many uh, injured, not put them in a, one particular hospital, sent them across to many hospitals. And uh, some of the assets which were there from, from Indian side uh, could not ascertain uh, for sure how many uh, casualties have happened. But of course, you know, in those days, the television channels, you know, they just randomly picked up a number. Um, if my memory serves me right, I think it was 300. Uh, and the government never denied it. And, you know, they kind of stuck to that uh, uh, argument. And, you know, it is something which suited their narrative as well. Um, but 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 as far as my research is concerned, I think the, uh, the, the ammunition, the missiles, uh, you know, they were able to hit the target, uh, but the government has absolutely no idea how many casualties took place. So, Rahul, I'd like to ask you, if you could, to sort of bring the narrative up to the present day. Uh, at, towards the end of the book, you write that Pakistani-based terrorist groups, they're now using things like drones to send weapons into India. Uh, groups like Jaish Muhammad may be using Nepal rather than Pakistan as a way of infiltrating India. So as you kind of step back, and think about Kashmir, a place you know so well, a place that you call home. What does the nature of the terror threat in Kashmir look like in 2021? It's a pretty complex question, Milan, really. Um, so let's begin with this new threat of drones. Uh, now, we've seen uh, in the uh, past year or so, uh, especially, uh, the Pakistani agencies' extensive use of very sophisticated drones. Uh, these are basically Chinese-made powerful quadrocopters, which are used to carry ammunition um, uh, and, in case of Punjab, even even drugs across the international border with complete impunity. Um, and these drones have the capability of landing uh, many many miles inside the Indian territory and where you know, the particular coordinates of that particular landing are already given to uh, terrorist groups and there is someone already waiting at that particular pre-designated uh, pre spot and then, uh, you know, whatever these drones are carrying is picked up and ultimately finds its uh, way to J uh, Jammu and Kashmir. So it is a very credible threat and unfortunately so far, you know, I've visited um, uh, the Samba sector uh, along the international border in Jammu where uh, most of these uh, infiltration by drones uh, take place. Uh, this is also the uh, the particular sector where um, Pakistan has drugged these really, really sophisticated uh, tunnels through which people like uh, Umar Farooq uh, and his men have infiltrated uh, uh, time and again uh, into the territory. And from there, uh, a sympathizer or an overground worker uh, picks them up and then transports them to uh, Kashmir. And these tunnels are really engineering mounds. Um, uh, and and sadly, so far, as far as this drone technology is concerned, uh, the government seems to have absolutely no strategy how to uh, deal with it. Uh, this has been flagged time and again, um, uh, but, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a very, in a very old uh, fashion, you know, the government wakes up uh, when things are already on fire. So I think now they're kind of waking up to um, the, that threat. But having said that, you know, the, the things are things look a little dicey back in Kashmir. Uh, you must have followed the uh, 
uh, recent killings of uh, uh, members of minority community in Kashmir. Now, the new threat is these nameless overground workers who are hardly trained, but they don't need any training to uh, kill an innocent outsider as they call them in Kashmir, you know, for someone who's from mainland India or someone who belongs to the minority communities of Sikhs or Hindus. Uh, you just need a pistol and a, a, a body cam uh, and you go and, uh, you, you know, engage in this particular, uh, particular crime. And these are mostly, uh, you know, as far as our uh, information is coming, mostly overground workers who are new recruits and, it is difficult for police to catch them because, you know, they have no record. They are sort of under radar as of now. Um, the other big challenge is the, uh, you know, mushrooming of uh, small units of uh, IS uh, in Kashmir. We know for sure uh, that in the past few months, uh, at least one big unit module of ISIS has been busted uh, in South Kashmir. Uh, with the help of uh, FBI. Uh, the FBI team was here uh, several times. There are uh, senior investigating officers uh, from, from India's agencies who have recently been to the United States and they are cooperating about the existence um, of these modules uh, in South Kashmir. So that is, that is going to be uh, another big challenge. Uh, which we will witness in Kashmir in the coming days. Rahul, let me ask you one last thing before I let you go. You know, with the American exit from Afghanistan, many voices in the government or who are sympathetic to the government have noted uh, with some degree of uh, glee, I guess you could say, that the decision to nullify Article 370 and thereby gain the upper hand in Kashmir in retrospect, looks like a pretty prescient move. Um, without getting into the merits, demerits of the 370 decision, let me just ask you this. Do you think the union government today is better positioned to neutralize possible terrorist threats, whether they be external, internal, than it was back in February of 2019? The answer uh, is, is, a, is a mix of gray, really, uh, Milan, and I'll explain how. Uh, you remember our conversation after the abrogation of Article 370, and I, I, had, I just returned from Kashmir after a, a trip in the middle of this uh, um, essential, uh, you know, big crackdown. Uh, and as I was speaking to a number of police officers or investigators who work uh, in Kashmir, and they were absolutely happy. Uh, and they were making a joke about the fact that now they do not have to uh, report to anyone like Mr. Mufti Muhammad Said, who will ask them to, uh, you know, someone, a local small-time politician uh, will pick up his phone uh, and then uh, direct them to release this overground worker, which they were arrested after a lot of hard work. And as some of the police officers joked uh, to me, my old friends, they said, now we can do anything because Mr. Amit Shah is our boss. He's, he's, he's directly our boss. So... In initially, you know, after the abrogation, um, I think some parts of how to deal with, uh, you know, old uh, uh, deep, deep state of insurgency in Kashmir, some some work was done. Um, you, you know, I, I think in terms of dismissing of uh, uh, employees who have, uh, government employees who have ties with uh, 
separatist groups and militant organizations. Um, uh, that the, you know, some steps like that were big steps. But somewhere down the line, I felt that you know there is some basic flaw in the counterinsurgency model we are following in Jammu and Kashmir. And allow me a minute to explain this because you know even after. 30 years of fighting militancy and killing uh, scores, hundreds of terrorists, even after 30 years, if the success of your counterinsurgency model is based on the fact that in X number of months, you have killed X number of boys, then I think, uh, you know, as an old student of Kashmir, as an, as an old student of counterinsurgency, I think there is something wrong with that model. Uh, because as we know from uh, the 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 life stories of people like Adil Amatar, there is never going to be any sort of dearth of uh, young Kashmiri men who want to take up this path. I think the success of this counterinsurgency model now after 30 years should be the fact that you are making some attempts to hit at the fountainhead, at the source of this radical jihad, which means that you know you're you're dismantling uh, the very strong network of uh, uh, you know radical organizations like Jamaat Islami, which is the uh, Kashmir equivalent of Muslim Brotherhood. But you know officers who have of late been dealing uh, with Kashmir in the post uh, 370 abrogation of 370 scenario are sometimes frustrated because they think that uh, people who take decisions in New Delhi um, do not understand uh, the dangers and perils of uh, radical Islam. But the the deeper the deeper mal- uh, the deeper problems in 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 in, in Kashmiri society uh, remains. The Kashmir of 2021, I'm afraid, is much more radicalized than the. Kashmir of um, uh, 2021. My guest on the show this week is the journalist Rahul Pandita. He is the author most recently of the book, The Lover Boy of Bawalpur, How the Pawama Case Was Cracked, published by Juggernaut Press. Uh, this book not only provides an intricate uh, examination of the Pawama attack, but it actually just links so many disparate strands of terrorism, militancy, politics, uh, that will make your head spin, um, the number of connections that are made. Uh, Rahul, thank you so much for for taking the time, and congrats again on the book. Thank you, Bill, and I, I'm glad to be here again, and uh, it was wonderful having this conversation with you again. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com. India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.